Actually, my apologies. We have tried to inculcate the practice of remaining standing for the reading of the Word of God, so let's stand for the reading of the Word, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12 to chapter 5 and verse 2. Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John, as John the baptizer, had been arrested, he, Jesus, withdrew into Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel. And leaving Nazareth, his hometown, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, Sea of Galilee, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan, seeing the crowds. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, as we're learning. The word of our God stands forever, to which we say together, Hallelujah, and thanks be to God. In times of genuine biblical revival and reformation, there's always a, a, a drive, a passion, an impetus for what I'll call Christian counterculture. And, and that's, that's a fascinating study, and you can actually do it by centuries. If you go back to the, the 16th century, the 1500s, when we had what we know of as the Protestant Reformation that we'll be celebrating again at the end of this month, um, the, the, the passion was whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God when the scriptures were opened up to people and they realized what it was to, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. There was that passion to do that in every area of life and literally uh, brought about what we know of as, as, as modern Western civilization. That's the 16th century. And then when you go to the 17th century and you think just of our own nation, it was in 1620 
the coming of uh, the, the Puritans and pilgrims uh, to the shores of New England because their desire was to see a city set on a hill, a light set on a hill. There was that, that passion in those days uh, for the pure worship of God and seeing, and seeing whole areas uh, that were, were governed wisely under the lordship of Christ. Again, biblical, ongoing biblical reformation in the 16th century, in, in, the, in the 17th century. And then, and then in the 18th century, the, the 1700s, uh, the great awakening that came in the United States of America, um, in which the accounts are amazing, especially in New England, of, of families that had been godless, and, and they're, they're struck with a reverence for God, a fear of God, they worship God, and the accounts are particularly that in the evenings you could walk the streets and you would hear whole families singing psalms in their homes, and I would imagine hymns as well, reading the scriptures. It was a, a wonderful time of, of change needed in our own land. And then, then you go to the 19th century, the 1800s, and Long Island is especially indebted to that, and what was called the Second, the second Great Awakening, uh, which, which, kind of, which really uh, hailed from Yale University. And uh, there were uh, a series of revivals when, um, that, that worked themselves out in, in a passion for missions. The American Tract Society began at that time. There were also movements for social reform, but it was at that time uh, that Yale students who were on Long Island Sound, believe it or not, would take canoes on Friday afternoons and they would come down to the north shore of Long Island and work with the Indians and many churches were planted. You can still see some of the buildings today, but that revival and reformation worked it out that way. And, uh, and then in the 20th century, uh, what was made popular by the movie recently, The Jesus Revolution, uh, when everyone was convinced that our culture was going to hell in a handbasket in the 1960s, and it seemed to be, God, God brought a, a sense that the quote-unquote free love of, of that day was not getting them anywhere but in trouble. And in the late 1960s, God did begin to convert many, many young people, and um, there was a passion in them for what I call radical Christianity. If you're going to follow Christ, you follow Christ with everything. And, and that worked itself out in revival and missions, in churches being filled again with, with pastors that ministered the word. So, so the whole pattern, when there's genuine revival and biblical reformation, it always works itself out in one way or another in a, in a Christian counterculture. And one of the things that convinces me that we're not in a period like that is this. American evangelical Christianity is possessed of what Francis Schaeffer called personal peace and affluence. So long as I'm not bothered by things, so long as I have my stuff, uh, so long as I'm, um, as I'm enjoying myself, then that's, that's all fine. And that's not revival, folks. Uh, that's, not, that's not biblical reformation at all. That's pure self-centeredness. And when you wed that to the love for entertainment, you're reminded again that we, we really do need something we're not experiencing yet, although some claim that it happens in certain areas a bit. But, 
We're not in a general period of revival and reformation like these others. So what does that all to do with this? Well, we pray. We continue to pray that the Lord send that. It's interesting that you can go back each century and see that. I'm just getting, skimming the top with these things. But you also have to prepare for that. You also have to prepare for the time that the Lord does begin to convert people and they get over the desire for personal peace and affluence and entertainment. And they want real serious Christianity. They, they, want, they, they want a real God-centered world. And we need to be prepared for that. And that's why this morning we come to um, the Sermon on the Mount that's given to us. Um, there isn't any better place to prepare a Christian counterculture than Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, let, me, let me do three things today with you. Number one, why, beyond what I just said, why, why this series? Um, number two, what, what is this sermon? And it's never called the Sermon on the Mount. That was a phrase that St. Augustine coined in the 5th century. Um, it, if it's a sermon, Jesus taught it. He didn't preach it. And clearly this is on the Mount, but Luke records a version of it on the plain. But for our purposes, Sermon on the Mount is fine. Why, why this series? And what is this sermon? And then how do you join with the disciples who, who sat at Jesus' feet listening to it? Okay, So those are the three things that we're going to look at this morning. Number one, why is this? Why do we have this series? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is often quoted. A lot of times with people not knowing what they're quoting from, but it's often quoted, and it's almost equally often misunderstood. I'll just give you some examples. Judge not that you be not judged, which Jesus gives in a context in which he is making a judgment about false teachers. But you know how people use judge not that you be not judged. Ask, and it will be given to you, as if this is carte blanche to ask for a Cadillac or millions of dollars in your bank account or whatever it would be. Ask, and it will be given to you, even when our Lord gives some pretty careful descriptions of what you do and what you don't ask for. Give to one who asks or begs from you. Do you give to everyone in New York City? who's begging for money? Are you sinning if you don't give to them? Turn the other cheek. Does that mean there's no place for self-defense? Does that mean there's no place for just war? If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, literally. If not, why did Jesus use that expression? Now, now you see, and these, all of these things have been used in very wrong ways over the years. So even though the Sermon on the Mount is often quoted, it's often misunderstood. And so part of this going through this is to get you thinking accurately, thinking clearly and accurately about what the Word of God really teaches. So that's, that's one reason. The second is we are 
in the process of assessing a man's gifts for the ministry. David Rios was away this weekend, and uh, David is supposed to be listening to me preach, and I'm supposed to be listening to him exhort or preach when he's licensed. And in trying to think through a, the best way to do that, Sermon on the Mount is ideal. <laughs> because David and I can divide out the sections and who is doing what and so on, and we're dealing with what the same kind of genre of Scripture. We're dealing with a sermon. And, and so it seems that that is ideal for this stage, dealing with him. But here's the third reason. There are few portions of Scripture that are better for young churches like the Haven. I can't think of any, in fact. You, when a child is young... You teach a child, in many cases, to play an instrument, to play the piano or to play the trumpet or to play the guitar, and, and you want them to, to learn that instrument well. And, and, and even if the child be, grows and is not particularly interested in music or even particularly gifted in it, that, that early training with the instrument has benefits for the rest of the child's life. And so the Sermon on the Mount and going through it at this stage in our life, which is still very young as a church, hopefully will, will be that which sets a tone, sets, sets, a, sets a, 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 a trajectory for what we are as a church in, in the years to come. And also, should the Lord send, I pray that I'd live long enough to see it, should the Lord send genuine Holy Spirit revival and reformation, Sermon on the Mount is going to help you prepare to know how to minister to people who are asking not how they can be entertained with the next gospel song, but how they can put into practice what Jesus says in his word, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. So there you go. There's your, there's your three reasons for why this series. Now, Matthew 5 through 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount, or Luke, Luke uh, chapter 6 and verses 20 to 49 has a condensed version of this. Probably it was Jesus giving the sermon on another occasion. There's all different views about whether uh, this is a compilation of things Jesus gave at a lot of different times. I'm not going to get into all that. Fact of the matter is this is a very extensive statement of what really is a constitution for the Lord's work in the world. So as we come to Matthew uh, 5 through 7, let's, let's think about the background to this, okay? And, and this ought to make you say wow to all of these things, the background. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew writing under the inspiration of God. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was writing to Jews at the time, um, primarily to Jews. Matthew gives this genealogy of how Christ goes all the way back to Adam. And, and the, the, you see the background of Jesus in um, where he came from and the connection with the Old Testament. And then his birth. And, and I think, brothers and sisters, we hear that material about the birth of Christ so much that we miss the awe of it. His name will be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel is God. God with us. Think about that. It's not God just speaking through the prophets. It's not God, if I could put it this way, just being present in the temple or the tabernacle. He is with us 
as a person. He is the God-man. And that Emmanuel, God with us, his name will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all, all of this language of, of salvation and deliverance that is painted on the pages of the Old Testament, that's going to be fulfilled in one whose name is Jesus, but who is no less than God. Wow, and that's just, that's just chapter 1 in Matthew. And then you come to chapter 2 in the early years of Jesus' life, and you have the account of the wise men who probably visited Jesus a year or two after he was actually born, although we're not sure about that. But it's a fulfillment of a prophecy. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, Thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, out of you shall come one who will be the ruler of the nations. That's fascinating because Israel had two Bethlehems, one way, way up north and one down near Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus is born, very specifically 500 years before the fact. Micah prophesies that. And also in chapter 2, right from the outset, there is that opposition that you will expect when God is working in his grace the way he is here. This, this is the promised seed of the woman. This is the one born of a virgin whose name is Emmanuel. That's prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. But in that prophecy, there's the statement that there will be enmity, there will be strife between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and hence the opposition of Herod to the children who were born, the need of Jesus and his family to flee to Egypt and uh, even to stay down there longer than they thought, and eventually to settle not in Jerusalem, but away from that center of the opposition to Christ up in the northern part of, of Israel, which is most interesting. Chapter 3 is actually about 30 years after the end of chapter 2. And John the baptizer comes on scene, and he says his message that he preaches is, repent, stop going in the direction that you're going in, and go the opposite direction. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. King, same as the kingdom of God, Matthew writing to Jews is very cautious about the way he uses even the name of God, so he uses the kingdom of heaven. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And how profound this unusual individual, John the baptizer, is called to make straight in the wilderness a highway for the Lord. He's preparing the way for Yahweh, the Lord himself, to come. And when he does it, utterly unlike what you would expect, he takes aim not at the Gentiles, not at the pagans, he takes aim at the Jewish establishment. And when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the formalists of that day, come to be baptized by him, and that was an Old Testament cleansing. It was not New Testament baptism. It was an Old Testament cleansing to prepare yourself for something special God was doing. John 
has the boldness to say to the religious leaders, don't call yourselves children of Abraham. See, there are some people who will say today that just the fact that a person is a Jew means that he or she is a child of Abraham. That's not what John taught. He says, don't call yourself a child of Abraham, one who's necessarily worked in by God. God can take these stones and raise up children of Abraham to himself. What a, just exactly what you did not expect of when a person would come on the scene. You'd think that these people would have been in a very special way honored, but they were not. And then Jesus comes on scene, and he's baptized. There's no mention of repentance. Jesus didn't need to repent because he never sinned, but he was identifying himself with his people as he did throughout his time. He was born of a woman and, and made under the law. And when there was a call for a cleansing, he identified with his people, not because he needed to repent, but because he was identified with his people. But there's more than that. When priests entered upon their official work, they were cleansed for their task. And John's cleansing of Jesus was what set the stage for Jesus to begin his public ministry, uh, not just as a king, not just as a prophet, but as a priest for his people who would give himself as a sacrifice. And then Jesus is tempted. His public ministry does not begin publicly. His ministry begins when for 40 days he is isolated from the people and he does battle with the devil. And in that place, Jesus is really fulfilling a couple of rules. Number one, he is doing what Adam and Eve did not. Where Adam and Eve, again, Adam and Eve were alone in the garden and the devil comes to them and they succumb to his temptations. And Jesus does not succumb to the temptations of the devil. But in doing, in, in, in operating the way he does, he quotes the book of Deuteronomy. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Why, why is he quoting from Deuteronomy? The Israelites had been disobedient. They had not followed the Lord faithfully. And Jesus is doing what Israel did not do. He is living out of every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God, and he's doing it well. So all of that is the stage for the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus is actually done, when he's done being baptized before he's tempted, the Father says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Lord uses the language there of my, my deepest pleasure, my deepest delight. We speak of the good pleasure of God's will. In Christ, you have the embodiment of the deepest delights of God. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have my greatest delight. Jesus is tempted. He does what Israel did not. And then chapter 4 and verse 12, Jesus hears that John the baptizer has been arrested and he would be eventually be beheaded. 
At that point, Jesus withdraws into Galilee, no doubt to pray, to prepare himself for the ministry to come. He is in the northern part of Israel. He's not in Jerusalem. He's nowhere near it, but as far away as you can be and still be in Israel. He is in Galilee. He leaves his hometown, which was in that area, Nazareth, which was kind of like the other side of the tracks. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And he lives in one of the major cities, Capernaum, that is on the border of the Sea of Galilee, but it's in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali because, again, Matthew writing to Jews primarily is saying, don't you see the things prophesied in the Old Testament? They're fulfilled, including this promise given in Isaiah chapter 9, 700 plus years before Christ came into the world, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, north the northern part of Israel, which was primarily Gentile. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. How does that come? It comes as from that time Jesus begins to preach, to proclaim officially. When you preach, a king has sent you. You are proclaiming officially a message from the great governor saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in fact, what he preaches is called the gospel. He proclaims the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. What What's Jesus getting at here? Look at Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7. And in your pew Bibles, that would be page 680 and page 681. This is the text that Matthew says is being fulfilled in your hearing. Those who dwelt in deep darkness, on them a light is shined, and so on. But notice how the text goes on. How does this all come? How does this light come to Gentiles? How does light come into darkness? For to us a child is born, verse 6. To us a son is given. That's the early part of Matthew. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. That's a kingdom. And his name shall be called, what's the name of this governor of this kingdom? Wonderful Counselor. And that could be just his name is Wonderful. He does wonders. And he is the one who counsels. He deals with our own hearts. Or Wonderful Counselor. He's the counselor who changes our hearts. Both are true. 
mighty God. Remember, he's Emmanuel, God with us. Everlasting Father, and that he's going to bring forth a nation. He's not the Father, but he's one who will bring forth a people to the Lord. Prince of Shalom, of peace. Notice the language of government, of the increase of his government and of Shalom. No end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That, brothers and sisters, is what's in view when John the baptizer and Jesus have both said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That kingdom is the kingdom in which the government is on the shoulder of Christ. Our great king is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. It's a, it's a kingdom that will continue to grow and be established with justice and righteousness. And God's going to put all of his zeal in back of this so that it will be accomplished. That's, that's what's in view when you hear the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, let, let me give you an illustration, because it's kind of hard to grasp this. Um, I'm hesitant to use it, given all the chaos going on in Washington right, time, right now, but maybe this illustration will comfort you that things could be better. There's an election in November in an election year, and a new president is elected. He will not be inaugurated until about three months later, uh, or two months later, in mid-January of the next year, and there is an interim period in which he's not yet president, but things are being prepared for him. That would be like the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's, a, it's something that is not yet inaugurated, but because the king has come, it's there. And what do people do? Well, if you are in the Washington area and you have been an opponent of that one who was newly elected president, you do one of two things. Either you get out or you get on board with the new administration. That would be the equivalent of repentance. Repentance would be, I'm going to stop following my own way and follow the way of this new king. Or, lots of people just move into what we call the beltway precisely because they want to be part of this new administration, okay? They want to be part of this new government, this new administration, under this new president. It is at hand. That's precisely what's in view when both John the baptizer and Jesus preach this. We're no longer waiting for the God King to come. He's come in history. He is right here. He doesn't need to be elected because the Lord already ordained him to be in the role that he's in. He's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he is to be crucified, to be raised from the dead, and to ascend into heaven, which would be the equivalent of his inauguration. That will come, 
But if you are going to prepare yourself for those things in the kingdom, you must repent. You must turn away from sin and self and turn unto him. Okay, so that, that's, that's the idea of repentance. Stop and go in the opposite direction with Christ as your king. Now, I, I don't hear this today so much, but in fact, the wrong teaching is still present with us. The, the, the idea that Jesus can be your savior, but not your Lord that Jesus can save you from your sins, but if you really live the way you want to, you live carnally, he's not really your Lord, then that's still okay. You're just a carnal Christian. Folks, you don't divide what God has put together. If Jesus isn't your Lord, he's not your Savior. He is Savior and Lord. And his, in the introduction here, the focus is particularly on his kingship or his lordship. And, and even at the end of the sermon, you see the emphasis on this, because in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus, now this is powerful here, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and Jesus says in Matthew seven twenty one, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. And here's what's scary. On that day, it's the last day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? This is a sobering thing that people who don't know Christ as Savior and Lord can still see great churches built, can still lead great mission projects. All right? And Jesus declares, he preaches to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And you could put names to this, I won't. But, but Jesus is saying, this is how serious my lordship is. And then if you don't get it then, verses 24 and following, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came. Think of the weather of the last week or so in New York. And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. What is it to be founded on the rock? It's to be founded on Christ according to his word. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So Jesus connects obedience to him with building your life on his word. That's what it is to follow him as Lord. And as you go back to, to Matthew chapter 4, what are these citizens of the kingdom? Jesus says, repent, verse 17, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as he's walking by the sea, this is fascinating, he's going to call the first two of what would become the apostles, here just called disciples. And he, and he calls Peter and Andrew, and they're fishermen, and, and he says, follow me from the first century, <laughs> beginning with this. That's what Christians have been called, those who follow Christ. I'll make you fishers of men, 
And notice, they don't dilly-dally. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then there's two others, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And they're in the boat with their dad, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Um, and that day when you submitted to your parents, that was a big deal. But Jesus had great authority. Immediately they followed him. Why? The king... The king calls for your obedience. Immediate obedience. Obedience above love for all other earthly beings. Okay? And then he goes to the crowds. He goes throughout all of the Gentile areas. Galilee, the northern part of Jerusalem. And now it's not so much preaching. He's teaching in their synagogues. And he does preach the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God that comes, Isaiah 9, and heals every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spreads, again, the north, all Syria, and they brought him the sick, the affl those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Folks, this is not the phony faith healers of today. Come on. You're sick, you have a problem, and, and you come to me and you're not healed. It's your fault. You don't have enough faith. Later, Jesus would rebuke the disciples that they didn't have enough faith. Never the people. And he didn't just heal some, he healed them all. What quote-unquote faith healer does that today? None. Because they're phonies. And it's pretty obvious to anyone with any spiritual sensitivity. But Jesus heals them all. Why? Kingdom of heaven. In heaven, there will be no paralytics. In, in heaven, there will be no more oppression by demons. In heaven, no more illnesses. And Jesus, as it were, takes a generous dose of heaven and brings it down and says, this, this is what eternal shalom is is going to be all about. And so the crowds, here it is, follow him from Galilee and Decapolis. And now we get people coming from the southern part of Israel, from Jerusalem and Judea, and even from beyond the Jordan, which may mean toward the south of that area. But the great crowds are now coming to Jesus of the increase of his government and of shalom. There'll be no end to order it and establish it from this time forth and forever. So what you see here is just a specimen of these wonderful things that we sing about every year in Handel's Messiah. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. He does wonders, doesn't he? Counselor, mighty God, he shows his power. Everlasting Father, he's compassionate to his people. Prince of Shalom. It's all, it's all here in one way or the other. And then, seeing the crowds, he goes up on the mountain. And, and I think it's right. Remember, Matthew is showing throughout the book how Jesus is doing perfectly what Israel didn't do right at all, okay? And, and so the themes 
of Israel and the Exodus and so on are pretty common in Matthew in various ways, including the mountain. The mountain where Moses went in the Old Testament, it was the law. And it was thunderings and lightnings, and you don't come near the mountain. If you touch it, you'll be destroyed, the law. Now Jesus goes to the mountain. We don't know exactly where it was, but probably in Galilee there. And he sits down, which was the posture of the teachers, and his disciples came to him. I don't know where the crowds were, but at least those who wanted to follow Jesus come to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. He taught his disciples, saying, These are Christ followers. They are citizens of the kingdom. There's mobs that want to apparently see the signs Jesus did. But these these are the people that really want to follow Jesus. And they come to Jesus. And Jesus is going to open up to them the lifestyle of the kingdom of God. He is going to open up to them what, if you will, a Christian counterculture is. And what's fascinating as you go through it. It's over against the pagans who have their own way of doing things. And it's over against the religious formalists, the religious, the Pharisees, and their way of doing things. And Jesus sets this real counterculture over against the pagans and over against the religious formalists. I love the statement that John R. Stott, the late Dr. John R. Stott, was a, he was a British pastor, and uh, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he just kind of plops this in. He says, I'm convinced that the very heart of the Sermon on the Mount is chapter 6 and verse 8, which is, which is almost exactly the middle of the sermon, when Jesus says, don't be like them. Don't be like the pagans. Don't be like the religious formalists. Christian counterculture, the lifestyle of the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So, there you go. That's, that's what you do with the sermon and, and what it is, lifestyle of the kingdom. Now, as we wrap all of this up, Let's talk about how you join with the disciples. There are people who say, if we could just implement the Sermon on the Mount in every culture, wow, how wonderful things would be. That's not why the Sermon on the Mount is given. It's given to disciples. It's given to those who follow Christ. Others say, well, it's impossible to do the sermon. It's kind of like the law. It's impossible to keep it the way it should. And so it's just discouraging. No, it's not discouraging. The Lord Jesus gives grace to do it, okay? To do it by his own grace and to his glory. But what? how do you join with the disciples? I used this illustration at the Where Are You With God meeting the other night. Um, and, and this is a helpful thing when you're dealing with unbelievers, okay? Imagine people born into this world, and excuse the expression, this has nothing to do with the border wall, but it's going to sound like it. Imagine they face this massive wall 
that keeps them from seeing reality. It's just this massive wall that's here, and, and they, they, cannot, they cannot get beyond it into what is ultimately true, what is really true, and so on. It's just a, it's just a wall. But there's a door. There's a door that you go through, and when you go through that door, you come to what would be the equivalent in the Wizard of Oz as the yellow brick road. You, you come to this pathway in which you follow what God has laid out. You're able to look at all of your surroundings with a right perspective, and you're heading in the right destination, which is glory, okay? That, that, that's really the best picture I can think of of what it is to be born in this world, to come to Christ who is the door, and to become his follower on a road that interestingly looks exactly like a cross, because that is the Christian life. So what, what is it to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus? Well, it's someone who goes through that door. You come to Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. And there's no compromise here, folks. A lock, stock, and barrel is a, is a term that refers to three parts of a gun. The lock, the stock of it that you hold, and then the barrel that goes out. When you come to Christ, you come with your whole gun, lock, stock, and barrel. And the reason that's a, a good illustration is you don't fight with God anymore. When you come to Christ as your Lord, he's exactly that. You're not. And, and Jesus has, has a wonderful way of knocking down our self-lordship to give us a Lord who is infinitely better himself. But it's got to begin that way if you're going to be a Christ follower. You come to Christ as your king, giving up your warfare. And what's the evidence? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's your whole life, brothers and sisters. It's not like you, you get to a point where you say, all right, I've repented of all my known sins. I'm fine. Now I'm just going to get in my little basket and head to heaven. Uh-uh. No, no, no. The whole of life, as Martin Luther said, is repentance. I, I realize I'm convicted of my pride, and I turn from it. I'm convicted of my lying, and I turn from it. I'm convicted of my lusts, and I turn from them. I'm convicted of my wrong value structure, and I turn from it. And that's, that's your day, brothers and sisters. Not that you're morbidly dwelling on yourself, but you have this internal register called conscience that is informed by the Word of God, and it tells you things have got to change. You've got to stop this and go the opposite direction. That's repent the whole of the Christian life. I love the statement, I am, I am repenting, right? Repent, and you come to the king, the king of the kingdom of heaven. And in that way, what does that mean? You're part of a whole new administration. You're in that, you're in that body of people that is in the beltway before the new president is inaugurated and you've either repented of your wrong views and you're going in the right way or you're someone that's had those right views and you come there. fact of the matter is you're part of a whole new administration. This is not the, 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 
the kind of sappy, Jesus is my personal savior. Well, he saves us personally. Can you say you're part of a kingdom? That changes everything. I'm part of something way, way, way beyond myself. And when you can say that and mean it from the heart, I, I'm a different person. I have a, a different king. I'm following a different Lord. I'm going in a different way. That's something called a new birth or a birth from above in which from the time you're born, there are things that mark you as as someone who is alive. Uh, you cry, you eat, you, you grow, you learn, okay? And, and, and a citizen, a, a born again, born from above means heaven is your animating principle. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Is that true of you? It is so important we begin this this way because those are the ones who are to receive the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus calls them brothers and says you have a, a father in heaven and so on. Is that you? That, that, that's what it is to be a Christ follower. You are part of a whole new world. The term that's used for the Lord's people is resident aliens. Resident aliens. An alien is someone from another country but you're living for a time in this land. We'll put it like that. I'd ask Nan's permission to use this. Um, the best illustration I can think of, and you would as well. Nan is an alien here. Not, not, a, not an alien from Mars, <laughs> but an alien from China. She's from China. That's her home country. And, and when she comes to the United States, this is not her home, but it's her home. Uh, she's a resident here. Uh, she lives in Deer Park, uh, 264 West 11th Street, and so she's a resident there. But her citizenship is China, humanly speaking. And, and there's certain defaults when she eats. It's not a fork, it's chopsticks. What she eats always has rice with it. When she thinks about customs, her default is to think about the way they do things in China. When she thinks about scenery, the scenery is what she has in China. Or when she relaxes, it's more the tea rooms you have in China. And even her family is what she thinks of from her country of real citizenship, China. That's what a Christian is in the world. You're living here in this portion of the United States of America, but when heaven comes down and glory fills your soul, you, you eat differently. You eat and drink to the glory of God, whether the, whether the culture you're in does it or not. When, when you awaken in the morning or when you go to bed at night, both and, you give thanks to God for his goodness, whether the culture that you're in does it or not, because heavenliness is thankfulness. When, when you think about how to do things, 
It's not the passing standard that you read about in the newspapers or the magazines, if people still read the newspapers and the magazines, or the blogs or the podcasts. It's what does God say in his word? That's my default. And even when you think about your leader, your first leader is not President Biden. Your first leader is Christ, because he is king of the kingdom. And when you think about the misery of whatever culture you're in, you don't rest there because of the increase of Christ's government and of shalom. There'll be no end. This country will fail. This if it's not doing it right now, it will. The kingdom of God will not fail. And you're always, always, always going back to those things. If you're a Christ follower, Jesus is your Lord, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and if you want to follow Christ, do you? Is, is, that, is that your life? Those are the ones who are around Jesus, and Jesus is now. Let me tell you about the lifestyle of the kingdom, and we'll begin to look at that next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for some time to think about the background to this sermon that is so commonly used and misused and read and not read accurately. Lord, we love the fact that the Sermon on the Mount is the sermon about the King of Kings, his kingdom, and how we're meant to live in it. Lord, that's only by grace. And we ask that you'll give that grace to us daily, that like the four disciples that were called, when you speak to us, we would obey immediately, immediately, that we would obey even above obedience to other earthly authorities, and that we would obey by following you. We love the fact, Lord Jesus, that you're the great prophet who teaches us. You are the great priest who once offered yourself up as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to yourself, and to continue to pray for us. But Lord, today we rejoice that you are not only the king who's come into the world, but you are the king who has disarmed the devil and reigns from heaven and will continue to increase your government until you come again and bring it in with absolute perfection. O Lord, hasten the day when faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, when the last trump shall resound, and you shall descend. May we be able to say, it is well with my soul. Amen.